Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. How you doing today, Cecil? Doing pretty good, Richie. What's going on? Well, I'm really excited because baseball has started once again. People still watch baseball? I think there's like three of us that still watch uh, baseball. You, your dad, and your wife? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not even my wife. Actually, it's pretty popular on TV. I'm not quite sure how many folks actually go to the games on a, on a daily basis, but TV ratings aren't, aren't so bad. But um, I've been a lifelong Cub fan, and so is my father and father before him and father before him. And we're hoping that this year, just maybe, just maybe, that we'll be able to break the streak and win a World Series first time since 1908. You've been winning for that for a little bit, haven't you? Yeah, for a little bit. And you know what? It's something that you probably didn't even know, but our guest is a Cubs fan as well. Oh, so that's why you had him on the show. <laughs> it's, that's, that's just a happy coincidence. There happens to be Cubs fan all over the country. So uh, we're hoping that this is going to be the year, man. All right, man. Well, hey, good luck, right? <laughs> yeah. So what you been up to? Well, you and I actually just got back from Orlando for Orlando Code Camp. Yep. And I got to say, every year I go up there, I have such a great time. It's really well put on event, lots of great speakers. And it's always cool for me to you know get to see some of the boys that we haven't seen in a little bit. Oh, yeah, man. It's always fun. Yeah, and then on the 16th, 16th of April, I'm going to be in Tallahassee for the Tallahassee Code Camp. You know, I'm going to link up with our buddy, Ashley, who Ashley was actually on at the last episode. You know, we're going to get together and we're going to talk about uh, Aurelia. We're going to talk about ASP.NET Core. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a good time. Good luck with that, man. I know Tallahassee is kind of a drive, but I, I know that they'll appreciate you showing up. Yep, 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 yep. It's going to be a good time. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Bradley Ball. So Bradley Ball is a former Microsoft SQL Server and Data Platform MVP with over 15 years of IT experience. He spent eight years working as a defense contractor for clients such as the U.S. Army and the Executive Office of the President of the United States. Wow, that, that seems to be a high office. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, he's doing some good work there, right? Yeah. He works for Microsoft on the Premier Services Developer Team as a senior consultant. He's presented at SQL Saturday, Dev Connection, SQL Bits, and Pass Summit. He can be found blogging on www.sqlballs.com about SQL Server or anything else that interests him. This episode is recorded on February 24th, 2016, and now our conversation with Bradley Ball. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. I think the first time I actually honestly heard about you was, I think one day Richie was online and he was tweeting. I saw it was one of his tweets. He was talking to, I see this name, SQL Balls, right? Yeah. And I, I look at it and I'm like, Richie, you really talk to some strange people, man. Like, I don't really, I don't really know where you, I, where you I, find I, these guys from. I remember that conversation. Yeah. Do you really? <laughs> oh, I, I, I do because I remember, uh, I, I remember being tagged in the tweet where you were like, "Here's some weird folks. I can't believe they've got these names." Rump, balls, Woody. I mean, really? Yeah, Joe Sack. Joe Sack. Yeah. So obviously, no. Obviously, I, I clicked on your name and I saw that Bradley Ball was your name. So I'm like, oh, okay, cool. That makes sense now. And I'm assuming too that you're you're obviously a SQL professional. So 
outside of that, could you just give me a little bit more insight about, again, who you are and what is it exactly that you do? Yeah, so my name is Bradley Ball. Um, I have been incredibly fortunate uh, just career-wise to be able to do some of the things that I have. Um, right now, uh, for two more days, uh, I am the data platform management lead for Pragmatic Works, but I have already put in my notice. I'm, I'm actually on vacation this week before I transition, and starting on Monday the 29th, I will become a uh, premier services developer for Microsoft. So I want to hear more about that. I mean, we haven't really had any conversations um, with people about how they go about moving from one job to another. So what went into your thought process as far as Hey, I'm working for uh, X company, and I'm now going to go off to well, a, a much bigger company, and the company that we all know and, and heard of. There comes a point in all jobs uh, where, as you know it, there's there's things that you sit there and you consider, and one day you you find yourself going, I wonder what else is out there. Um, and I I found myself in that position, and I, I had had multiple people from Microsoft over the years reach out to me, and in one way or another, my career is always. Uh, been about Microsoft technologies. My my first job out of college, I was an accidental SQL Server DBA for SQL 2000, but I was also an ASP Classic developer and ASP.NET developer on the 1.1 and the 2.0 framework. Um, my next job, I was a developer doing VB6, ASP Classics, a little bit of com objects in VB6, um, .NET 2.0 framework, uh, up till about the 3.5 framework, as well as a SQL Server DBA. And that's where I got my certifications and I, I truly became a DBA. And that was, that was for the Army. My, um, first big senior DBA job was, was for the Office of the President. And then I went over to Publix. Um, at Publix, literally, I went to Publix because they were a good company. They were solid. They've been around for a long time. They had a really good philosophy surrounding them. And I, I went there thinking this will be the job that I work Till I retire because we all want to find that job in a place where we can be happy. And I found the SQL community. I'd, I'd found the SQL community through uh, the 24 hours of pass when I was up in DC. And I really loved the 24 hours of pass and the fact that this free training was just made available. And so whenever the 24 hours of pass would come up, I would actually um, take one of the conference rooms, book it up for a day or two days because for a little while they were doing the 12 hours over two day periods of time. And I would sign up for all of the sessions that they had during the work hours. I'd run a projector for the entire time, and I would literally just sit in the conference room, and I would make sure different people on the team knew when we had something that was pertinent technology-wise. I would invite managers when they were doing previews of, of different technology for us to be able to sit down and discuss it. Um, and there were a couple times that it actually led me to contacting the presenters and going, hey, you cover this in depth. Would you mind having a conversation with us because we've got this business problem? Um, but through that, I met all the guys at Pragmatic Works, and of course, I, I love those guys. They are a family to me, and still are. And I just uh, I, I went over there um, after presenting in the community for about a little over a year. Uh, they kept saying, "Hey, come work for us, come work for us." And eventually, they said all the right things, and I said, "Yeah, I'm going to come work for you." And with Pragmatic Works. I'm in a very senior leadership position. So this was honestly, this was a decision that I, I kind of wrestled with that I, I didn't take very lightly. And the key things that I looked at when Microsoft came and talked to me was I looked at some of the things I would be able to do for my family um, from a benefits perspective and, and the way that the Microsoft corporate culture is. When I interviewed with them, 
I had about eight different individuals I interviewed with, and the person who had been with the company the least had been there 10 years. And one of the really important things to me is why you do what you do every single day. Um, I think it's incredibly important. And if, if you recognize that saying, um, Cecil Ritchie, are you guys familiar with Simon Sinek? No, I'm not. Yes, I am. You are? Okay. So Simon Sinek um, has given one of the best TED Talks ever, um, basically how great leaders inspire others into actions. He's got other great speeches out there, Why Great Leaders uh, Eat Last. Uh, he's got a couple books, but his whole thought process is, is why you do what you do. People don't buy what you do. And oftentimes if you ask a business, why are you in business? They say, well, to make money. And a profit is a byproduct of what you do. It's not why you do it. And I think it's important to look at the why you get out of bed every morning. And and so my question to all those people when I was talking with Microsoft was essentially the same thing. I said, why are you still here? You've been at Microsoft this long. Obviously, that looks good on a resume. You could go out. You could get a job somewhere else. Why are you still here? And each of them had their own individual story, but it basically came to the fact that Microsoft was an environment that invested in their employees. They really cared about their people. Um, it was a place where they found tons of room to be able to grow uh, and also elements of personal freedom mixed mixed with a big corporation that you know is willing to put dollars into their employees. And so that to me was a very, very appealing type of thing to, to be able to go somewhere. And I mean, it's funny when we talk, we typically talk about SQL Server. When you look at Microsoft as a whole, they're a software company. Um, even I'm currently an MVP for the data platform. And when you go on there, you can say, hey, here's what I'm an expert in. SQL Server is just one line item. It doesn't say database engine. It doesn't say BI. It's, it's a line item. And you sit there and we know everything that is encompassed within that, what it means to actually master one end of the stack to the other. And I mean, we could all spout off, you know, great people in the community, Lewis Davidson for data modeling, Paul Randall for internals. Um, you know, it, there's, there's just so many great people out there, Paul White for the optimizer, and it's all one line item. So it's really amazing just the vastness of, of what they do. Um, on the one hand, looking at them, it always made me go, oh, wouldn't I be lost as one employee there? But talking with people, it truly they truly felt like what they did made a difference and that they were able to make an impact, which um, – and, and they were very well taken care of. So that was my biggest thing is I, I looked at – I love what I do, but I can love what I do at Pragmatic Works or, or at Microsoft – the key thing to me was what can I do for my family? Um, and there's a lot of things that uh, Microsoft does just from a benefits perspective and all that other stuff that really fantastic. And so I, I sat down, you know, and it's nerdy, but I did it and I made my little pros and cons list. And, and the biggest pro was at the end of the day, you know, what I could do for the kids. And I went, okay, well that, that should be number one in any decision making process anywhere. So, um, when I, when I let Pragmatic Works know, I want to make sure that I had a lot of time. And I, I think that it's important to sit down and talk with your, your people realistically. Before I put in a notice, I, I sat down and I talked with my boss and I said, Hey, this is what I'm looking at doing. This is where I am in the process. Talk to me about the type of no notice you would like me to give. Talk to me about what you would want me to be able to help wrap up by the time that we get to the end of this. And I, I think it depends on your situation for everybody. We've all had those jobs that we've done a really, really great job at. And, you know, we can all remember those jobs where we had bosses that we hated and we couldn't wait not to work with them anymore. Um, 
I'm, I'm in a situation where I absolutely love the people that I work with and I wish them nothing but greatness and success. And so I wanted to make the, the transition as easy as possible for them. At the end of the day, um, not that I, I think I, I would leave Microsoft and go back, but I want all those bridges intact. Um, and Pragmatic Work is still a small company. Um, great people there. And if there's a way that I can help them be successful, I want them to be successful because uh, there are names and faces that I attach with that company. It's not just a company to me. It's uh, my friends that I, I still sit there and joke around on text message and on Twitter and uh, people that I'm going to see at community events for years to come. So, so what might you decide to to choose to move forward to Microsoft? Like, what exactly about what they're doing and essentially the world that you're moving into became very attractive to you? So I'm, I'm a leadership role and I'm a manager. I'm, I'm a, a tier level three point of escalation for a lot of technical issues, but I, I miss getting my hands on technology. Um, I really like leading a team and I like managing a team. And I know that that sounds like a funny thing to say, but I like when I look at being a manager, I look at it as my job as manager is first off to make sure that you're in an environment where you feel secure because there are two things I, I can, two ways that people generally work. Um, one is they don't know how to do something and the other is they don't want to do something. Right. I can't help people that don't want to do something, but for people who don't know how to do something, I can work with that all day long. And I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I can see um, and I have seen great things within other individual people. Uh, Jason Strait, who I worked with, um, Jason was one of the best consultants that I've ever worked with before in my life. His ability to absorb complex technical information incredibly fast and process it uh, was second to none. Um, Steve Hughes, uh, Data on Wills, uh, on his blog and on Twitter. Steve is hands down one of the best consultants I've ever seen at creating a relationship and growing a relationship with clients. And those are, are things – and that he does just naturally. And it's because he's a good person and he genuinely cares about them. But all of these are inherent behaviors that I look at people and I go, if you go up to him, you go, how do you do something like this? Uh, how would I teach someone else to be like you? And most people will say the same thing. Well, I'm, I'm not really sure. It's just inherently part of my personality. And what my job as a manager was, was to kind of look at my people that did exceptional things, break down what those elements were and figure out how I could help teach other people to be successful in those areas um, because my job is to help you succeed. And first off, you can't be afraid to fail. Everybody's going to fail at some point in time and have a customer who's unhappy or something that didn't go 100. And when that happens, we can't you know, have people afraid that they're going to be thrown out on the street. They have to realize that they're a valued employee, that um, you know, that this is a safe place for us to work and that everybody's going to make a mistake. But the, the next thing you do is you go, okay, how can I make people better? How can I make it to where these things happen less often and, and we're not fixing the same thing over and over and over again? What I am very excited about from a Microsoft perspective is I'm going to get to go be hands-on in technology again. Um, I love data internals. I love working with SQL Server. I've been the person who set up the architectures and um, and set out the project plans for um, data science engagements and big data engagements and APS engagements and BI engagements as well as data platform ones. But I haven't been the person that got to go and hands-on do it. I, I build it because I present on this stuff. 
but I'm looking forward to going in and doing POCs. Data science is an area I'm really interested in right now. Um, I've been doing some of the R stuff on datacodecamp.com. Uh, um, Pragmatic Works has a really great data science course that um, Jason Shu, who got his master's in, in data science from Northwestern, that um, he put on. And they just put on their on-demand training lately. And so... Um, I've been going through that on, on some of my vacation time. I'm looking forward to some of the internal resources that Microsoft has, but um, I think data science is the next big um, kind of frontier for us to be able to hit. Have you ever decided or even thought about working for yourself and starting your own company? I have. Um, I, I think that any of us in, in this field who do this and – it's interesting when you get hired as a job as a consultant. I remember when I got hired um, by Pragmatic Works when I was considering going over there. I, I called my buddy Jack Corbett up um, and Kendall Van Dyke, and both of them are, are good Florida guys. Jack's up in Maine now, but um, in the New Hampshire area. But uh, he's always been very active in SQL Pass, and he ran the OPAS chapter in Orlando, which is how I first met Jack. And I said, "Hey, you guys have been doing this a long time. You guys are really smart in this." Um, you know, how do you think I'd do there? And Jack said, you know, the first time I met you, I thought you you would make a great consultant. And he goes, I was honestly surprised you weren't one already. And it's funny because I don't know what in my mind made up a consultant, but I didn't think I did. Um, I thought, oh, what do you mean? I'm just a guy who can walk in a room, talk to business people and understand what they need and use SQL Server for that. I went, well, that's a DBA. And come to find out actually translating business requirements into technical requirements and then executing on them, that's being a consultant. Um, so I, when I first went into that field, I, I didn't necessarily think that I was a, a consultant or somebody who would go start their own business. Uh, one of the things that I look at with the starting their own business is, is a bit of the risk. Um, I'm, you know, single dad. I, I've got four kids. I have child support to pay. I have all these other stuff that I have to do. And to me, there's too much risk at this point in time in my life to, to starting a business on my own and trying to run it. I, I think it'd be an interesting adventure. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Um, I think Pragmatic Works is probably the closest I will ever come to something like that. But um, just from a taking care of my family standpoint, that to me is more risk than I'm willing to bet on at this point in time. I think if I was single, I could do it because I know that the only consequences I would face would be my own, whether I fail or succeed. But um, I, I think, you know, looking at my kids and knowing, hey, I can provide for them like this or I can make a risk. Um, I don't think I'd want to make that risk because the downside is just more than I'd be willing to have, you know, than I'd be willing to pay. So I guess I could, I've been searching for you a little bit online. I've been kind of digging into some of the things that you've been into. So I see you have a lot of pictures of, um, look like some little Star Wars figurines, it looks like. Are you a big, um, Star Wars, you know, comic book fan or anything like that? Oh, I'm, I'm a huge comic book fan. I have, um, I have, no exaggeration, hundreds of comics. Really? Uh, uh, yeah, I've got Superman comics as old as 1964, and then I've got um, them as modern as 2016. I, I have the entire run of every single Superman comic from uh, the year 2000. I have no idea why I thought the year 2000 would be the big 
uh, big one for Superman, but yeah, I, I have every single issue of Superman printed in 2000. And, so are you uh, a Marvel or a DC guy? Like, where, where do you sit? It, movies wise, I'm definitely falling in the Marvel camp so far. Um, uh, and I've because got, Green Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> it, and I got to tell you, that kills me because Green Lantern is one of my favorite comics, and they've done yep. they've done yep. some really cool things. Blackest Night. Um, which was yeah. literally the closest you will ever get to a zombie superhero story that works. Like the whole Mar- Marvel zombies thing, eh, I get it, but it was just it, that was too much one-sided of a battle. The the Blackest Night thing really works for me, and Ryan Reynolds is fantastic. I've I've always enjoyed him as an actor, and when they came out with the Green Lantern movie. Um, I believe a piece of my childhood died and, and wanted to <laughs> find whoever had written, directed, and produced that movie and punch them somewhere unmentionable. Um, but you know what I love, too? I love how in the Deadpool trailer that he actually makes fun of his time as um, as um, Green, Lantern. Green Lantern. I, I think that's hilarious. I love that. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I loved in the opening credits how one of the guys has has a Green Lantern card in his wallet. Um, yep. I, I love the superhero thing where he's like, whatever you do, don't make the suit green and don't animate it. And make it hideous, <laughs> right? <laughs> yep, 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 exactly. So, so getting back to the Superman thing, Superman is, I mean, you would see it kind of maybe in the golden age of, of comics, um, but I, I don't see him as a compelling character, I guess, since, you know, since that time i mean he's he's been overpowered he's been underpowered he's been killed so what makes superman such a a a character that you would gravitate towards so the definitive superman story in my opinion is action comics number 775 what's so funny about truth justice in the american way um I actually bought that for Rodney Landrum for his birthday because Rodney's a huge Superman fan as well. And uh, um, it came out in 2001, and I think it says it beautifully. Literally, um, I don't know if you've heard of the elite. They're basically a bunch of uh, – they're a team of, of superheroes, um, kind of antiheroes in DC where their whole purpose is to um, – they believe superheroes are too soft, taking these bad guys to jail, letting them go. You just need to kill them and off. And, um, of course, completely contrary to Superman and the Justice League and the way things have always been run. And so they are introduced in, in this comic, and Superman keeps showing up for incidents, and he will find the bad guys just terribly ripped apart or killed, and the elite are gone. And what, there's some country uh, i think it's supposed to mirror iraq at the time where there's a dictator and he's invaded a uh, another nation and he goes to show up and the leader there and they're decimating the ground troops and he basically shows up one of the guy's powers is setting off these giant blasts almost like a nuclear bomb it knocks superman out he wakes up on their ship and when he wakes up they're like hey we're big fans we like you a whole lot blah 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 blah." and he's like and he tries to reason with them the natural superman thing hey you know the way you're doing this it's not good blah 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 and eventually they turn around they're like yeah we really don't care what you think and they beam him out of his ship well he goes and he captures somebody and they show up and they go okay you've done your job step aside so we can take these guys out he says no they try and push him away he punches one of them and they go okay we were just waiting for you to cross the line, and they basically set high noon uh, the next day to, to be when they're going to have their showdown. 
And there's a lot of doubt. He's flying around, listening to little kids playing, and you know, one of the kids is dressed up as Superman. The other ones are the elite. And the kid goes, "I don't want to be Superman. He's lame because you guys can kill me, and I can't kill you." And it creates a lot of doubt within the reader. And so they show up to do High Noon, literally in front of the Daily Planet. Superman goes, "Not here. You know, you're you're going to destroy too much. Don't do the collateral damage. Don't take out Metropolis." And they go, "Okay." So they beam him to another planet, but they're televising the whole thing and live-streaming it back to the Earth. And they proceed to beat the ever-loving crap out of him. And all that's left is his cape floating on a rock. Uh, and all of a sudden, there's this disembodied voice that goes, you know, I get it. All this time, I've been holding back. And slowly, one at a time, methodically, in just absolutely amazing displays of power, he takes them out one at a time. Um, and their leader... Manchester Black uh, is this telepath who can move mountains with his mind. He basically is walking up to him and he's yelling at him, you know, you giant hypocrite, you've killed my entire team. Um, I'm going to destroy you. And then there's this little pop sound and uh, he goes, what happened? I'm thinking, you know, that you should be leveled under a mountain and it's not happening. And he goes, oh, yeah, um, I used my X-ray vision and I found this unusual lump in your brain. And then I inverted my telescopic vision through your corneas and used my heat vision to cut it out. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the guy goes, you did what? And he goes, yeah, I basically lobotomized you. But I found that little part that makes you you and I, I cut it out. And so the guy goes on a big rant about how he's a hypocrite and everybody back home has seen it. And and no matter what, he can never turn back from this. And Superman goes, exactly. He said, it's just lucky for you that I don't like my hero's dark. I don't believe in it. And he goes, what do you mean? He said, your team's not dead. He said, but each of them is going to wake up with the mother of all headaches. He said, and I didn't lobotomize you. He said, but what I did do is I gave you a concussion to knock that part of your brain offline that, that works for your powers. And he goes, I don't believe in heroes being dark. He said, that's just not me. And he said, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he goes, uh, he goes, you see that team that's on the way to pick up your people right now? He goes, that's my team. That's the Justice League. He goes, because this is what being a leader is all about. He said, because it's not because I have all of the powers that gives me the ability to wear this S on my chest. He said, it's because of what I choose not to do with them every single day. And he goes, well, you're just going to put us in jail, and we're going to break out, and we're going to come after you. And he goes, that's right. He goes, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And he flies off. And I, I think that encapsulates Superman right there because it's not that he is the strongest, the fastest, the greatest, all of those things. It is literally the act of will. That would any of us, I mean, I, I think any person, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. He is literally the person that chooses not to do these things, not to walk into the bank fault, not to, you know, pummel your enemies into submission. Um, I think that is the thing that honestly is even more relevant today than ever when we have all these politicians out there that are talking tough, doing black ops underneath the covers. And people are just not working together. It is literally not the strength to use these abilities that we need in this world. Um, it's Everybody tends to fly off the handle. You have acts of road rage. You have parents beating each other up at kids' hockey games. It is not that I don't have the power to be able to act. It's literally that self-restraint that makes us all more human. 
that allows us to be able to deal with something and process it. So I've been looking into some more comics recently. I, I, I before the kids came along, I was I was I was reading a few, uh, mainly like Morrison's X Men run, uh, and then into Joss Whedon's X Men run. So I was like kind of uh, more of an X Men reader. And now with Marvel Unlimited, which is like ten bucks a month and has a huge backlog of of comics, I've kind of getting back into it, reading an issue here, an issue there. Oh, I completely agree with you. I love Marvel Unlimited, and the there are certain comics I always loved. What if? Um, I like. Uh, I think they called them the Runaways, but there was or sorry, Runaways was great. Run, Runaways was good. I was thinking of the Exiles, where it was oh, yeah. a team of of mutants that were constantly hopping between different timelines, and they would kill some of them off, and they would add new members, and they would keep going, and I I loved that, and um. Yeah, Marvel Unlimited. Completely agree with you because uh, I don't buy as many Marvel comics because Marvel made a very interesting decision by literally just keeping their universe going um, and constantly expanding storylines and making and not being afraid to make changes to characters in ways that makes them completely unrecognizable. We all know if I were to say who's the Fantastic Four, who the Fantastic Four is. The changes that have happened to that group, you know, the X-Men, the fact that Wolverine has actually been dead for, you know, two to three years um, and that they killed him off and that, you know, uh, it's it's uh, his daughter that is Wolverine right now. And that the only way that Wolverine actually shows up is the old man Logan story arc. They've somehow crossed that universe over over to this one. Um, Marvel is is doing very interesting things from a storyteller perspective. I I do like the new run, the 50, new 52 that DC has done. Um, that's the thing, though, is Marvel, it's so hard to find a jumping on point. Uh, and, and, and Marvel Unlimited actually helps with that because you can go, I mean, literally, in order to read one Spider-Man comic book right now, you have to go read about a year or two's worth of Spider-Man comics to figure out what happened in the other, what happened uh, when Doc Ock merged with, with Spider-Man. Um, yeah, Spider-Island. Exactly. Why uh, Spider-Man has a girlfriend that's not Mary Jane. Um, you know, how Aunt May knows. Uh, yeah. it, Silk and uh, Spider-Gwen and, oh, yeah. oh look, there's there's another, there's two Spider-Men. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's the thing is Marvel – I feel like Marvel is not easy. Literally, the only reason I think Marvel has as much traction as they do nowadays is because of their movies and because of their television shows uh, because kids can hop onto those very easily. Um, the the movies, the Netflix series, which are, are just incredible, um, I honestly wish the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. would go off of ABC and go on to Netflix because I think there's much more interesting stories they could tell if they were willing to make that be a darker series. Oh, yeah, I could see that. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, it, it would be, right? If you actually had people who died, if you had assassinations, if you were able to lump in those characters, and then if you were able to have Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. potentially collaborate with Daredevil, Power Man, Iron Fist, Jennifer Jones. Jessica. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you, you, you say it's hard from jumping on point from Marvel because I think historically that's, that's not the case. I think over, you know, the past 10 years or so, the stories have gotten very, much more complex than yes. they were, uh, previously. Cause before it was easy. Hey, I'm going to pick up a, um, uh, some X-Men and I could kind of go through that. Maybe it's two books that I have to jump through, but 
usually that doesn't happen very much, but um, I could just pick up, you know, say uh, Morrison's run on uh, New X-Men and every month that was going to be the same, right? I mean, I could, it was going to pick up from last month and that, but I think recently that has kind of changed where now we're having this huge world changing events and um, it's a little hard. And I think historically DC has been in that universe, right? Where starting off with Crisis in 85, they completely just rewrote everything and then all of a sudden every comic changed. And then with New 52, 52 and New 52 and they just constantly are changing that universe. It's interesting that they're kind of, as opposed to the new reader, they're coming on to the Hey, this you've been sticking with us for thirty years. We're going to give you more of the same. Yeah, and and I completely agree with you there. I mean, one of one of the greatest things that I I got for Christmas this year, and I've I've been asking for it for years, and finally this is the year I was listening to. I always said, you know, if you walked into a comic book bookshop and bought me, you know, whatever the budget is for me, just buy a big stack of comics, I would be happy. I was ecstatic. I was reading comic books for you know at least a week and a half. At the end of that week and a half, I went, well, I pretty much know what's going on with any of these DC titles, but for all the Marvel ones, I was like, what the what? Um, hmm. and yeah, that was like right in the middle of Secret Wars, right? It was, and so I actually yeah. went to a shop then, and I bought all the Secret Wars stuff that I could, and I read that, and I got to tell you, I get it. But I am still confused by why they thought that was a good idea. I did not enjoy <laughs> Secret Wars at all. I was like, wow. The, 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 it so reminded me, because right now I'm, I'm kind of popping around to some of that. Because um, for those of you who don't know, the Marvel Unlimited, the new comics that are coming out right now, in six months they'll be on the Marvel Unlimited platform. Yes. And essentially, so essentially for 10 bucks, you'll get like all of the comics that are coming out this month, in, but six months later. Which is actually for me, it's great because I don't need to be up to date, you know, with with any of this stuff. Right, I could take a bit of a bit of a lag with this stuff because it's it's going to take me a while to get through it anyway. But oh my god, that, that's right. But I mean, it re- it so reminded me when I was a kid. When I was a kid, um, the the big comic uh, was um, Crisis on Infinite Earth, and it was it was the first time I think um, a publisher said, okay, we're going to rewrite our entire universe. We have all these problems with continuity and things like that. We're going to completely rewrite it. So we're going to do a year-long comic called Crisis, and we're going to change everything up. To this day, and I still have a, a graphic novel of the whole thing, I have no idea how and why some certain things happened in that comic. Yeah, It is so jam-packed with stuff. It's like, I have no idea. It, I, I mean, it got it got to the point to where I believe they did a, um, a history of the DC universe, which was published shortly after Crisis, to kind of tell everybody, oh, this is how it works now. And I think that was a two-volume thing. Yeah, and I remember Incredible. that. And I remember having to read that to figure out. That's the thing is, if I have to read not one but two books about the book that you just wrote to know what that book was about – you did a bad job as a writer. <laughs> and you're actually drawing pictures for me. So it's not like this is just written text. You drew pictures and you drew and wrote in such a convoluted way that I'm still sitting there going, really? What? What? That's. I, I, I will say this about Crisis. Crisis has some of the, I think for the, for the 80s and maybe even uh, up till now, some, some parts of it are just, some of the seminal, iconic, yeah. iconic uh, 
things that have happened in comics. The death of the Flash, the death of Supergirl. Su- yeah, right? Superman holding Supergirl with everything around him and that yep. her oh yeah, I mean you can't the second I hear crisis, that's the first image that pops up to my mind. Yeah, yeah, I was such a big uh, Flash fan. And then when um they killed Barry Allen, I I I as you know, as a young as a 10-year-old, I'm like, uh, w- uh huh? Yeah. What? And then they had a new Flash, and it was Kid Flash. It was Wally West, and then he was the Flash for 20 years, and he was my Flash. And then they changed him to someone completely else? Yeah. No. No, I, no I, you lost me, DC. I, I <laughs> That's gotta tell what you, it was. I love the Flash TV series, and, and I, I love Barry Allen as, as the Flash. But in the back of my head, I'm with you. I'm sitting there going, yeah, I grew up with Wally West. Wally West yeah. was my Flash. I remember Green Lantern and Wally joking around and Wally being thankful that Green Lantern, because they, they did a whole reboot of HAL at the time, that he was new as well because he was the one guy that, you know, because he always felt everybody else was comparing him to Barry. So, so the real question, the real question is this, is that, you know, you know, our listeners have been, been listening to this a little bit and having us completely geek out about comics. Um, honestly, I'm not that deep into it. I, I just kind of, you know, just like some of my uh, SQL server knowledge, it's, you know, I kind of know little pieces about everything and I kind of piece things together. Um, what would you tell someone who says, Hey, I want to get started in reading comics? How would they go about doing that? That's a really good question. What I would do is I would take characters that they probably correspond with or they um, kind of uh, – the ones that they find most interesting to them, and I would encourage them probably to go find a couple graphic novel stories that they like. And I would tell them, don't go to a comic book shop. Um, go to Books A Million. Sit down in a chair. Browse through them. And if you get about 10 pages into this and you go, that's not for me, put it back. Um I think there's so many graphic novels because literally this has been going on for what? Uh, I mean, they they started comic books in the 30s. The 30s, yeah. So I mean, we're we're almost at uh, 80 years worth of comics at this point in time. So there's enough stories and bound volumes. I would say find characters you like, um, and the, and for every single character, there's going to be some iconic runs where you go. These are are really good stories. Todd McFarlane run on Spider-Man. Um, that's, that was definitely a great run there. Um, you know, go and look at John Bryan for Superman or look at the, the death of Superman, uh, funeral for a friend and, and Superman returns. Um, Joss Whedon's run on, uh, astonishing X-Men. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, and there's, there's actually been a lot of good runs on Astonishing X-Men, the whole ultimate universe, even though they killed the whole thing off. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis on Spider-Man for the ultimate oh. universe was just amazing. I'll tell you one thing I would love to do. And I, I know that the original art that Miller did, um, with, uh, close, uh, Johansson really, really good, but I would love to see somebody like, um, Jim Lee. Uh, or you know somebody else with a more detailed style actually do the Dark Knight. He did. Oh, they did. He did in Hush. That that whole Hush. You need to pick up Hush. Oh no, go, no, I I read Hush. I, I'm sorry. I, I mean, do the the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Returns storyline. Like I'd oh, I'd, I'd I love to think. see like because they've got um the Dark Knight three out right now, and I don't know if Miller's drawing it again. 
to be honest, that was a, to me that is the example of a fantastic story um, and an okay art style. There are times where that art is absolutely perfect for what it needs to be. Um, and then there are other times that I look at that art and I'm like, uh, really? I, I feel like my, you know, 12 year old going to middle school and art school could, could do this. Well, I mean, you, you take a look at the time that the Dark Knight came out, you know, and you pair that up with like Watchmen. That was, I, I see that that was, and a lot of people, I guess, say the same thing, but that was a time when, uh, comics kind of put its foot in the ground and said, we're not for kids. Right, we're we're just oh yeah, we're we could be for adults too, and I think that completely had changed, um, the game as far as how far comics could go. Because before it was just a ceiling, right? I mean, yeah. If you think about the 1960s Batman TV show, like that was it, right? You know, well, remember, but that's, costume caper, nobody dies, and all this stuff. That's, but those two comics itself just changed the entire game. That's when they rejected the comic uh, authority code. Because remember, That's right. Congress had actually come in. The reason that comic books from the 1950s and 60s are so valuable is because literally around the same time they did Reefer Madness and trying to come in and everybody that, you know, potheads were rapists, which is one of the stupidest things ever. Um, they were also going, oh, mothers, these comic books are corrupting your children and, um, you know, tear them up and burn them. It's funny that at that point in time, fresh out of World War II, they couldn't understand that burning a comic book should have been just as bad as the Nazis burning books. But they destroyed a lot of them. They they threw them away. That's why that period is is so valuable. I think one of the most valuable comics I have is I have a Tales to Astonish that is a horror story um, from 1959. And it's it's a near mint condition. I found it at um at a flea market up in uh, North Carolina, and I was huh. like, I I literally I remember looking at that thinking, how much do I? Because I was a broke college student at that point in time. I remember thinking, how much do I have in my bank account that I can actually purchase this thing? And remembering how high I would go in my head, and it was labeled one dollar, and I got up to the cash register, and they went. Um, Oh, this price is wrong. It's not a dollar. And I'm going, okay, 75, 80, 100. And, and they go, yeah, it's, uh, it's two dollars. And I remember going, well, yeah, I'll take it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, two dollars. Uh, okay. You know, I guess so. Yeah. But when I got home and I looked at my Overstreet buyer's guide, um, that one I think is, is now mine's not mint. Um, but it's probably near mint and mint. It was $500 near mint. It was 280. Not bad. Yeah, and, but literally that was because it doesn't have the comic code of authority, and it was one of the last ones printed in that time frame before um, – because the U.S. government passed some comic code of authority, and then for decades, Marvel and DC, everything that they, they printed had the comic code of authority. I think it was not until 2000 that they officially took that off of everything, or in the 90s they took it off everything. Uh, so, Brad, just before we come off – so is, is there anything that you'd like to, to let our audience know? Again, like any more comic book recommendations for them to check out? If I'm, for instance, like a new, um, new into the comic book space, anything, any particular arcs I should be interested in? Um, hmm. So definitely uh, I enjoyed The Blackest Night. That was a Green Lantern one that they did recently. They, um, they also did a couple before that that lead up to it, the Sinestro Wars, uh, and they introduced lanterns that have a lot of uh, different colors in the spectrums. Each of them have um, different things that make up their core, and, and so that led to something called the Color Wars that then led to uh, The Blackest Night. And The Blackest Night 
I am I am definitely a zombie fan. I, I like The Walking Dead, and so um, The Blackest Night really kind of combined the zombie world with the superhero world in, in a way that was exceptional. Um, so that that was a really good. And not only that, but every time a hero died, it joined uh, the Black Lanterns, and uh, that just made their forces that much more powerful. So um, I definitely recommend those. Um, uh, the early runs on X-Men, Josh Whedon's run on X-Men as well. Uh, Astonishing X-Men, I believe, was his title. Um, Superman, you, you can't go wrong picking up a, a lot of different one of those. Um, the best Superman story that I've ever had the pleasure of enjoying is The Reign of Emperor Joker. Um, and if you have not read that one, I would recommend that. Uh, essentially, I can't tell you what happens in it, but I remember when I started getting the comics on my pull list, at first I went, what, what is going on? Up is down, black is white. Uh, Superman is literally wearing a black and silver costume, and every night Bizarro catches him and throws him in Arkham. And it begins from there. But that was probably one of my favorite ones. And then Kingdom Come that we talked about as well. So... We'd like to thank Bradley for being our guest in the show. It was great having the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You can follow me at Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind the scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have Wantug's Director of Technology, Santosh Hari. Now, people seem to think that managers are like Bill Lumberg walking around holding coffee and firing people. So, but it's really probably the worst day of your life when you have to tell someone else who you who you have worked with whom you respect and love and you know you tell them that they lost their job it's 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 not a great experience should be an interesting one yeah see you next time bye bye to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! <laughs> Must read the show notes. This is very important. Awayfromthekeyboard.com. <laughs> <laughs>
This is Bradley Ball, and every day I start my day with awayfromthekeyboard.com. Perfect. Oh, we just got a drop. Nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. You know, we're going to steal that. We're going to put that everywhere, though. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Brought to you by Bradley Ball. Absolutely. I'm now holding a wonderful bag of Doritos. Doritos are delicious. <laughs> Let's go get you guys some sponsorship. I also enjoy a nice crisp Coca-Cola. <laughs> this episode was brought to you by Buck Woody. <laughs> and the good the people at Nabisco. What are you talking about? You're an idiot. Please leave. <laughs> I, I believe Buck has that trademarked. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, that was actually the number one reason I looked at Microsoft, Buck Woody. So, <laughs> so did you talk to Buck before? I, I did. I, I had actually talked to Buck um, back at uh, SQL Saturday Orlando last year, and um, yeah. he, he talked to me about what a wonderful company it was. I mean, look, he he went to Microsoft uh, back in, I want to say, 2007, uh, yeah. 2008 time, and uh, he is still there, and he still loves what he does. And so he, he was somebody who I definitely wanted to mine for information. So 